Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. So tonight I am going to talk about balance. Um, And the reason that I wanted to speak about balance was not to have you get frustrated and try to strategize constantly on how to bring better balance into your practice and try to manipulate your experience for better balance, but to see if some exploration of balance could help liberate you from the tyranny of the form of practice looking through the form and the various skillful means and techniques and methods that are employed toward more the essence of what the practice is. Because in truth, all of those what we call skillful means are toward an end, and that end is actually balance. It makes me think in a way of... um, when Jay Krishnamurti said something like, it is the truth that liberates, not your efforts to be free. I see this question of balance and practice as very similar to that. It is when our minds, our bodies, our being comes to a certain state of balance that we readily see the truth. And that is what liberates us, not some idea about grabbing insight or acquiring or possessing some kind of dazzling experience or, or something that we can you know, happily write home about or uh, proclaim at the end of the retreat. Look what happened to me. So it's not about trying to get something to happen, but creating the conditions where seeing the truth, seeing our experience in a different way, in a deeper way, in a more natural way perhaps, comes readily. We create the conditions of balance, and from there our minds open, our hearts open. We see things without so much the distortion of bias, of our hopes and fears and projections and preconceptions. This is what we're actually doing is continually working toward this kind of balance because from there, opening will happen all by itself. Usually, you know, we go through a day very much with a kind of model of acquisition, of wanting to have and get to feel better about ourselves. We tend to feel we do not have enough, we are not enough, we are deficient or defective, and if we could only get something, then that, that sense of incompleteness would cease. 
those of you who've um, been with me in New York City have heard me tell the story, I'm sure, about this time when uh, there's a fabulous store in New York City called Kate's Puppery. I don't think it's anywhere else in the country, but it has many branches in Manhattan. And everything in the store is made of paper. It's lampshades and notebooks and wrapping paper and Everything in the store is absolutely beautiful. So the very first time I was going there, a friend was bringing me, and we stood just on the threshold of the store, and she looked at me and said, this store is going to satisfy all of your paper needs. And I looked at her and I said, I don't have any paper needs. But within two minutes of being in the store, I felt like I needed everything in the store. I needed absolutely everything. And this is how we tend to be. It's very much that sense of I have to get, I have to own, I have to possess. So this model of practice being about balance is a direct challenge to that. It's not about getting a certain experience and somehow owning it. It's not about following an external form that makes no sense. But it is about employing every means we can to explore and enrich our understanding of what balance means. Because really, the whole path is about balance. If you look at the classical progression of how they say the Buddha always taught, they say, as I'm sure you've heard, you know, he began, they say, always, with a teaching about generosity, about giving, about relinquishing, about offering. Because, as he put it, everybody has something to give. Everybody has an ability to give. It may be material, It may be large or small. It may not be material at all. Uh, It may be giving of one's energy, one's thoughtfulness, something like that. But the path begins with generosity because that lays a certain foundation of joy, of confidence, of delight, an ability to let go instead of hoard and cling. And then the path, the teaching moved on to that of morality, because here, too, we are building a base of some kind of clarity, of some peace of mind, having a mind that's not so cluttered with all of those kind of torments of, you know, what lie did I tell to whom, and what does that mean, and how am I going to undo it, or do I need to reinforce it instead, and you know, just the, just the sort of tortured elements of, of mind that come into play when we're filled with guilt, when we can't figure out the next step. So that's also about joy and self-respect and love and compassion for oneself and others. So you moved from generosity to morality to practices uh, like metta or loving-kindness, where the Buddha said very beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. That open, that expansive, that unconfined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. 
cannot be painted, it cannot be marred, it cannot be ruined. You know, if somebody was standing here in the middle of the room just throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in this space for the paint to land. And so it's not going to matter if it's a really well-chosen color or really garish mistake. The space isn't going to be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. It cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. And following that teaching was a teaching about the Four Noble Truths, the nature of change, looking at our minds and bodies, seeing joy, seeing suffering, because that base had been built all along the way of openness, of spaciousness, of loving oneself, of loving others. Then there's a direct confrontation with unsatisfactoriness, with unhappiness, with not always getting what we want with some very real pain. Because the purpose of the path, you know, as I talked about before, is not to be broken by the pain and to be overcome by the pain, but to have a big enough mind to experience pleasure and pain, and neutrality for that matter, with the same kind of presence and clarity and care So the path itself is an unfolding of balance to create the conditions where we can be with absolutely anything. We don't have to be afraid of whatever our experience is. And we don't need to hold on when it feels good. So that's really the the context of the practice It's a very different sense than how we normally go around. To understand that kind of spaciousness, that kind of openness, which is not cold, it's really, it's very loving. But it has the nature of of detachment or dispassion, which doesn't mean indifference, and it doesn't mean withdrawal, and it, it doesn't mean not caring. It means having an inclination toward the truth, seeing and saying that which is true, without an agenda, without trying to manipulate the situation, without needing to distort the situation, but being able to be simple and to be... It's like a tremendous truthfulness. I think we all have been in probably all, have been in situations, some kind of heated exchange between people, maybe us, (laughs) as part of the heat, Um, when somebody is able to step back and say something from their heart, not because they want to see things go a certain way, but because they've been able to have that kind of perspective to say, oh, you know what? This is what I see happening. And there's something tremendously beautiful about that, in that stepping back. Because it's not stepping back out of not caring. It's stepping back to be disentangled, 
to see things from a better perspective. And we honor that. We rely on that very often and, and find it quite a compelling trait. So this is the same thing in terms of our inner world, not to justify what we're experiencing or defend it or detest it or hide it, but to be able to step back and open and say, yeah, this is, this is what's happening right now. That's the nature of, of that kind of detachment, which is filled with love. There's a teaching in Tibetan Buddhism where they say you should relate to the thoughts that come up in your mind as though you were quite an elderly person sitting at a playground watching children play. You know that it doesn't really matter that the shovel got broken, you know, even though the child is beside themselves with fury or agitation. It's just a shovel. It's just a toy. But there's also this huge tenderness for the child. You don't look at the child and say, you fool, (laughs) it's just a shovel. There's that appreciation of it being a child. All of that tenderness and, and warmth and care and compassion but with perspective. Oh, yeah, it is just a shovel, and you're really hurting right now. So to relate to the thoughts coming through your mind as though you were an elderly person sitting at a playground watching children play, that's balance, that's perspective. And they're very immediate expressions or experiences of balance and being out of balance, trying to bring different factors back to balance. We all know that at different times we might have a tendency to be way far back from our experience, not just that step back of detachment to see it clearly, but really back like we couldn't care less what the next breath feels like, or, uh, you know, we're just like so bored and so dreading having to pay attention to anything. (laughs) Oh, it's happening. And we clearly need to come forward some, have a, a better sense of curiosity, of interest in what is going on. And there are so many times when the opposite is happening. We have that sense of overreaching and trying too hard and trying hard to make something happen. It's what I describe when I talk about my very early practice, and I say it was so difficult for me to be with just one breath because as soon as this breath was happening, I was getting ready for the next So I was, in effect, continually leaning forward. And so much of my early practice was the need to just, like, settle back, come back. So it was at those points when I could feel how far forward I was that I would say things to myself like, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it because I was so overwrought. It was like I'd never done it before. Calm down. (laughs) 
come back. Let the breath come to you. And there are plenty of times like that in our practice. I don't mean to suggest a great deliberation where you try to figure out where you are, but our instinct, our sensitivity certainly develops. We can feel it. And we can make that kind of adjustment very simply without a great deal of self-consciousness or, or pondering. Come back. Or, hey, it's a breath. Come forward. Pay attention. Something like that. There are balances that happen between um, almost like more global feelings and, and attitudes that we bring forth in the practice. There's a balance between having a very strong sense of aspiration or even urgency on the one hand and being quite patient on the other. We need, I think, to have that really large sense of aspiration and almost like a vision of what could be possible for us as any human being, possible really for any human being. And it does need to be really big. And we do need to have a sense of urgency because for conditions to come together, for one to actually have an opportunity, not just to practice intensively, but to practice at all, um, is very great. It is rare and precious. And we are so, not only complacent, I think, in general, um, but we do have this terrible habit, I think, as a culture, of assuming that if we understand something theoretically or intellectually that we've mastered it, and that's part of the complacency. We think, oh, yeah, I've thought that through. Um, I've got that down. And just the sheer effort of bringing something to life and actually practicing it and going through the ups and downs and making it real, it's much more foreign to us than standing apart from a process, maybe in distant admiration, like, isn't it wonderful? Buddha got enlightened, maybe. Or, wow, you know, if I could only live in a cave in the Himalayas, I'd be enlightened really quickly, or something like that. And not really grappling with what might be possible for us right now. We need a sense of urgency not to actually waste our time. When we first opened the center here, um, is actually Steve Armstrong, who's, who's here as a, a meditator then, uh, who wrote this kind of mock brochure for us, which had in it things like, come to IMS and get to drink all the tea you could ever want, and get to use institutional cutlery. Um, and then he had as a kind of motto on this mock brochure, it's better to do nothing than to waste your time, which I like quite a lot. It's better to do nothing than to waste your time. So I thought we should keep that because wasting our time is really wasting our lives. 
And we do a lot of that. So to have that kind of commitment to being awake, to being aware, it's the essence of being alive. When the Buddha said, one who is heedful or one who is mindful is on the path to the deathless, whereas one who is heedless or one who is mindless is as if dead already. If we actually want to live, we need to have that that tremendous sense of intention, of motivation, of commitment. Because it is also, it's rather countercultural what we're doing. There's a lot of winds against us. And one needs to have a, a tremendous sense of almost like an abiding faith that this is worth living, this is worth not just thinking about, but living. We need that power and that kind of aspiration. And at the same time, we need an awful lot of patience because nothing happens faster because we want it to happen faster. There are the cycles of nature, like the cycles of healing, the cycles of life. We need to let things take their time. Patience, you know, doesn't mean a kind of grim endurance, like, you know, gritting your teeth and saying, well, I'll bear it for another five minutes because I don't see what else I can do. Um, And then if I do that, something better will come along. They say that patience is actually a form of devotion because it's opening. It's that willingness to open, to participate, to encounter whatever is actually happening They also say it's a form of austerity in the best sense of the word. It's tremendous simplicity to be able to be with, with with a full heart, what is actually happening right here and now. To allow things to take their course. To realize that there are laws of nature operating, that what we see in front of us may not be the end of the story. And we need to go step by step. That's the only true way to practice. That's the only true way to make our dreams come true. Because everything else is like a story that we tell of triumph or defeat, of exhilaration or despair. But what we have right in front of us is this moment. It's step by step. We need to be patient. There's a very simple image that's used sometimes in the teachings, which I've liked uh, tremendously ever since I first heard it. And these really are often quite simple images. And that is when the Buddha said, your mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. So I like this so much from the very first time I heard it because right away I could see myself standing by the bucket doing one of two things. One was looking inside and fantasizing, thinking, isn't it going to be great when it's completely filled and I'm completely enlightened? And I'd imagine myself back home in New York, kind of floating down the streets, wearing my white sari with a beatific smile, 
without having the patience and the humility to add the very next drop. And of course, the other thing I could well imagine myself doing quite easily was standing by the bucket and looking in it and saying, ooh, it's kind of empty in there. It's never going to get filled. And simply feeling defeated. And once again, not doing what I had to do, which was adding the very next drop, using that moment's experience to add a drop of mindfulness, of loving kindness, whatever that experience might be. And since I first heard that example and thought of those two uh, possibilities, a third has come to my mind, which is standing by the bucket and completely ignoring it to peer over into someone else's bucket and say, how are you doing over there? (laughs) You know, completely forgetting what I can do with my own. These are so common. But here we have a moment's experience. We have an opportunity. We have a chance. Just one drop at a time. This is how it actually happens. The rest is something we can think about or delight in or be frightened of, whatever the case may be, depending upon the story we tell. But it all happens step by step. It happens moment by moment. I can remember early in my practice when things would arise in my mind and I would go through this period of panic. What should I do about this? I wasn't that well acquainted with my mind before I began meditating. And, you know, some emotion or something would arise and I think, what am I going to do? And after a certain period of time, it's like this voice would come up saying, how about noting it? Try noting it. What about being mindful of it? Did you think of being mindful of it? Something like that. However, the expression was, you know, about exactly the same thing. And that was the moment when I wasn't trying to think, okay, what am I going to do about it tomorrow and the next day and next month, but like, okay, here's the moment. This is now. How am I going to relate to this right now? It's like everything would come back into balance because this is our chance. How are we relating to this right now? Is taking something about a path that could be abstract and removed and distant and making it real. Someone once asked the Buddha, how did you cross the flood, meaning the flood of suffering? How did you cross the flood? And he replied, I crossed the flood not lingering and not hurrying. If I were to have lingered, I would have drowned. If I were to have hurried, I would have been swept away. Not lingering and not hurrying, I crossed the flood. It's one step at a time, one moment at a time. Things evolve at their own pace, in their own way. We do what we need to do right now. We have that wholehearted, tremendous motivation, and we have the perspective of patience. Letting things move, letting things change as they will. There's a balance between the kind of classic balance between concentration and effort, which is very practical. Um, As we go through the meditative process, 
know, we've, we've talked about this in different ways. So many of the qualities that are developed are about the deepening of concentration with calm and quiet, relinquishing, letting be, tranquility. And so many of the qualities are kind of up, you know, energized, energy itself, courage, investigation, interest. And it's not so totally common that these come out in perfect balance. And then they will come into balance, and then they'll come out of balance, and then they'll come into balance. And we experience the the difference, um, I think, very much in our practice when the tranquility side is deepening, but at a stronger pace or rate than the energized up, interested side. We move from tranquility to that kind of dreamy, drifty state where we're, uh, I call it, as you know, the ooze. We're just kind of oozing along and it can feel really good. We don't have that much impetus to change it because it can feel really good. But it gets sort of muddier and muddier, and if it goes on for too long, then we do fall asleep. It can happen in mindfulness practice for a good long while before we tend to notice it that you start noticing those images and the fact that you're kind of, the breath is sort of like a lullaby and you're not really noticing the distinct sensations of the breath, but you're just kind of there. And and finally you do fall asleep. It tends to be much more obvious in a practice like uh, metta or loving kindness or one of the Brahma Viharas because we're actually saying phrases it's much more active. And what will happen in those practices when the tranquility side of things is much stronger than the energy side of things is that the phrases will get really garbled. So that, for example, I remember myself sitting in Burma and hearing myself say, may I fall asleep, may I fall asleep, and I'm going, no, wait a minute, that's wrong, or you know, may you be filled with suffering rather than may you be free of suffering or something like that. Or My absolutely favorite example of all this is a friend of mine uh, from Switzerland who sat here. And because he's from Switzerland, English is, is literally, I think, his fourth language. And his phrases in doing loving kindness were something like, um, may I be healthy and well may I live with ease. And he heard himself say, may I be wealthy in hell, um, and may I live with eels. But because English is his fourth language, he said it for some time. He thought, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite right. You know, but that gives you an indication of where our minds go, whether we're doing mindfulness practice or we're doing something like loving-kindness or compassion. It's that oozy state. 
And then, of course, there is the opposite dimension as well, where there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm and interest, but there isn't enough tranquility in our system at that time to balance that out. And so we get more enthusiastic and people, you know, write letters home in their mind. And I can remember doing this in India when, um, this is a long time ago, of course, when I was living in India in the early 70s and, uh, you know, there were no faxes, there was no email. And we used to write these aerograms, you know, which are like these air letters, which have just, it's just like this piece, one page that you fold up and, um, you know, and secure. So I only had certain dimensions to write on, you know, so I would be writing in my mind and it all had to fit in this aerogram. And then, you know, I had to make sure it did. And, uh, you know, we get excited. Oh, you know, I used to write these huge numbers of things in my mind about the beauties of concentration. You know, of course, I wasn't concentrated at all, but (laughs) I was very excited about the possibility of being concentrated. You know, we get interested in something and we investigate and we're all enthusiastic and but the tranquility is receding further and further. And so that, that interest and excitement changes to agitation, which changes to restlessness, which changes to insane restlessness, and is very, very unpleasant. You know, it's, it's a very obvious kind of balance that we're always working with. Sometimes in trying to bring things back into balance, what it really takes is just more mindfulness to be aware of what is happening with mindfulness's particular talent or nature, which is to be aware without adding grasping, aversion, or delusion. That in itself is like a balancing force, a balancing mechanism. It's almost like a a pole of stability, which then steadies the whole state. So that's one option, is being as mindful as we can of what is going on. The other option is employing an antidote. When we feel like we're quite out of whack in one direction, it might well be time (laughs) to employ an antidote to bring things into a greater state of balance. But... This always needs to be done with a kind of good spirit, almost a sort of lightheartedness, not to declare the state that we face as an enemy and to have the sense we're doing battle with it and we hate what's happening and we hate ourselves, uh, but really to have that sense. It's almost um, to see one's practice in just the same way we can see our lives, almost as a kind of artistic medium. And we're playing. We're creating. We're having that sense of exploration. Okay, if I do this, what happens? Um, you know, so it needs to be very open-hearted and open-minded. And so this is where we would say, sometimes they're very simple, the antidotes. You know, if you're feeling really sleepy, if that balance between tranquility and alertness or concentration and energy has gotten so far out of balance on the tranquility side, um, you know, so that you're really getting sleepy, open your eyes, sit up straighter, maybe stand up. It might be that what you need to do um, in a kind of almost more global sense is do more walking rather than so much sitting. 
I was just looking at um, some notes I had from talks I gave like 20 years ago, and I saw this story of a monk in the Buddha's time um, who every time he sat down to meditate, he would just fall completely asleep. So he walked for 23 years. That was his practice. And I can remember being so reassured when I first heard the story. I thought, oh, there's a practice for everybody. It's not always going to look the same because we're each coming to our own balance. It might be that if you're feeling really sleepy, um, you need to look at the particular quality in meditation practice that's called aim or right aim. What we're doing in the practice, and this is another balance between doing and non-doing, is really pretty simple. We're aiming our attention toward just what's happening in the moment and connecting to it without trying to make it be a certain way, without trying to manipulate it. So it's aiming and connecting. That's the doing part of practice. And the example that is used endlessly in Asia, and here too, um, is, again, a very simple example. If you can imagine a piece of food on a plate, and in your hand you're holding a fork, say it's a piece of broccoli, you have the obvious goal of connecting just deeply enough with the fork and the piece of broccoli so you can lift it and eat it. To do that, we need two qualities of mind. One is called right aim. You have to take the fork and aim it right at the piece of broccoli. If you take the fork and you wave it around in the air, you're not going to have a lot of lunch. So you take the fork and you aim it right at the piece of broccoli. And then the next thing we need is a, a careful and sensitive modulation of our energy. If there's too little energy, the fork just hangs in your hand. But if there's too much energy, it's like you take the fork and you bash it through the broccoli and everything goes flying all over the place. So this very simple example is used often to describe almost, you could say, the technical side of meditation practice. We aim the attention toward just one breath. It doesn't matter what just went by. And it doesn't matter what's yet to come. It's now and we connect. You don't want to be so far back that you really can't feel the breath, that you don't care about it. But you also don't want to try to get a stranglehold on it, you know, to shove away thoughts and and refuse any other experience. It's just aiming the mind and connecting. That's it. That's the doing of practice. Everything else just kind of happens as a consequence of that. So we don't have to try for great states. They all unfold. Everything unfolds as a consequence of that. So they say that when you're really kind of sleepy, that aim, that sense of right aim, is an antidote. You can sharpen that sense of aim. And it makes sense, really, when you think about it. I've certainly experienced that. I experience it sometimes most clearly in something like walking meditation, where, say, I was in this room, starting at that wall, and I can see that wall, where I know I'm going to be turning around in a few minutes. 
So I say to myself, okay, I'm going to be mindful from here until I turn around, which seems on the surface quite noble, but doesn't work because we can only be mindful one step at a time. So saying that sometimes is almost like hurling my energy body to the other end of the room instead of really gathering my energy and saying this step and then this step. And when we don't do that, when we kind of throw the energy in that way, we get sleepy, we get dragged down. We lose a kind of heartfulness. But if we are really gathering our energy for just this one breath, just this one step, we wake up. Because it's quite empowering. So that's one of the antidotes for sleepiness, is really look at that sense of aim. And if you have to, you can visualize a piece of broccoli. You really can. I've done it many times. And a fork. (laughs) And you just go, whoop. And then you have a sense. Okay, this is what I'm doing. And then... The other side, when you're starting to feel that cascade toward restlessness, toward agitation, they're really almost two distinct approaches, and you just have to see what works best. One is create a lot of space, because restlessness means energy. It's not a bad state. It means there's energy. In fact, early in my practice, whenever I wasn't in terrible, horrible physical pain, I was asleep. And I used to hear in these little group interviews that we had, these people talk about like their insane flights of restlessness and thinking, and I used to be kind of envious. And I think, oh, that sounds so interesting. I wish I had some of that. Um, And of course, then one day I got it, and it didn't feel that good. But it means energy, and that's the positive part of it. And so what you want to do is not lose the energy, but be able to channel it, to use it. And that means creating enough space so the energy can move. If a really big energy is trying to move through a tight, cramped space, it's going to be really jagged and unpleasant. But if a really big energy is moving through a really big space, it flows. And so we know personally through experimentation what works for each of us to create that sense of spaciousness. Could be getting outside. It could be doing hearing meditation. Could be doing loving kindness. It could be walking quickly. It could be walking slowly. You know, each of us kind of learns for ourselves what helps us open to have that sense of of real spaciousness through which the energy can move. It's not a time to try to have a really pinpointed awareness, you know, of, of the precise sensation of restlessness. And the other approach, which is is quite distinct from that, really has to do with deepening the tranquility. To immerse oneself in the feeling of the breath. To experience the breath and its sensations as completely as you can. It's like you were putting your hands in water and we're feeling all the sensations of that, which is very soothing in a way. 
It's the same thing when you come to the breath to feel it. It's that softness, that kind of soft attention that nonetheless is is quite there. It's quite present. One of the translations for the word um, that is usually translated as investigation is actually rubbing. To get in there, to rub the experience. You know, not to stand apart and just be watching it, but really feel it. And what I think was perhaps the cutest meditation instruction ever given, which was right here in this hall, Upandita's translator once said, have your mind rub your belly, which I thought was pretty cool. (laughs) It's that sense of really getting in there, feeling, that will develop the tranquility, will deepen the tranquility, which will help balance that state of energy. And then there are balances that we experience. It's not so much a sense of balance as, you know, taking a little of each extreme um, and getting to some kind of happy medium, but much more a sense of understanding how not to go to extremes or understanding how different strengths can support one another different ways of being, different ways of seeing can support one another. We spent these two weeks um, in this part of the retreat working with compassion meditation, which is the ability to open to suffering, to see things as they are, while caring to have one's heart moved by the suffering one sees without being overcome by it, without being destroyed by it. Compassion allows us to see suffering as suffering. When we notice our own anger, fear, jealousy, greed, and that whole long list of qualities, to see them as suffering rather than bad and wrong. Compassion allows us to see outside of ourselves the nature of suffering. And yet, there is something in compassion that is almost a sense of sufficiency that has a a sense of unity that is also filled with the quality of understanding or equanimity or wisdom, which reminds us that we're not in charge of the unfolding of the universe, that we don't seem to have that ability to make suffering disappear according to our our will or our determination. So our hearts open, we become present, we care with understanding. That's a balance. Because otherwise, we feel tremendously 
overcome. We feel nearly destroyed sometimes by the suffering that we see, whether our own or certainly others, and the suffering of the world. To be able to see what is with understanding. To be able to experience not just the kind of the poignancy and, and the sorrow of that opening, but the joy of feeling at one with others. So that we have that kind of comprehension about the nature of life. We don't feel so alone and cut off. We don't feel isolated in our pain, and we don't allow others to be isolated in their pain because it's not right. It's not, it's not the truth of things. And when the Dalai Lama um, came to New York City several years ago and was speaking in Central Park, um, he began uh, his talk in a way that kind of surprised me, um, where he said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power, temporal power, when I was 16. I had to flee into exile. In my early 20s, I've had to live all of these years in exile, the head of a community, and uh, making all this effort to keep that community intact. He said, I've had to daily or continually hear about the terrible conditions people are are experiencing inside Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. And of course, that's what one sees in him, is that he's pretty happy. You know, he doesn't seem morose and bitter and, uh, you know, just weighed down, tormented by the suffering he's seen. And obviously, it's not like happy-go-lucky, you know, where uh, he's he's ignorant or he's cut off or he's refusing to look at the extent and the nature and the duration of suffering. It's something else. And he went on to describe it. He said, I'm pretty happy, even though it hasn't been such an easy life, because of compassion. He said, it's compassion that makes me feel at one with everyone. And that feeling makes me happy. So he was speaking, you know, in Central Park to what seemed to be, you know, two or 300,000 people that day. And it was so interesting because I was sitting there thinking, many of us probably could have said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And not all that many of us could have said, but I'm pretty happy. So that opening to suffering isn't the same as being lost in suffering. The force of compassion allows us to be with what is, but to have this immense perspective of oneness, which keeps us balanced. And then compassion itself is balanced by the next Brahma-vihara, which we're about to practice, which is the practice of sympathetic joy, actually having delight and happiness in the happiness of others, rather than hearing or witnessing someone's success or good fortune and thinking, 
You know, I would be happier if you could just lose a little of that, you know. Um, but to, to actually have the sense of, of delight, of joy in the happiness of others. And here again, the, the Dalai Lama, I think, was very both cogent and kind of homey when he said, it only makes sense to develop happiness in the happiness of others because then you're increasing your chances of happiness six billion to one. He said, those are very good odds. And you think about it, you know, if you want to be happy, you don't have to like spend any money. You don't have to make elaborate plans. You don't even have to get dressed. You know, you just have to think about someone else's happiness and you're filled with happiness. You know, it's a pretty good thing. But the difficulty we have in experiencing sympathetic joy is that we tend to view happiness as a limited commodity in this world and to feel that the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so the practice, the ability to have sympathetic joy is based on our ability to open to joy, to experience it, to experience not the sense of being impoverished, but the sense of abundance, of inner abundance. It's not outer abundance, it's inner abundance. To be able to take delight in what we have, what we touch, what we can experience, then we don't feel that sense of being threatened and being so alarmed when somebody seems to be doing well. So we need to be able to open to suffering without being overcome. We need to be able to open to joy without being out of touch and unable to experience it fully. In all these ways and many, many more, this is really what our practice is about. And there are so many times when it really is just a question of taking the next step, using whatever experience is right in front of us to come closer in touch with, with what is and what we are capable of. So if you end up walking for the next four weeks, because that's the right balance for you, that's terrific. If you end up walking for the next 23 years, that's fine. To really understand the essence of what you are doing in creating these conditions of a a greater and um, more extended kind of balance. And let that be guiding your practice more than anything else. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.